1: Afternoon. So we're in the home stretch now. No turning back. You're on the other shore. I don't want to be the first person to walk across this bridge, (laughs) Um, but that probably won't happen for a few years anyways. (laughs) If you feel uh, every part of you sitting here, you feel every part of you when you're uh, in meditation practice, uh, you'll feel that nothing in you is dead. <coughs> every single part of us is alive. You can't feel anything in you that's dead. Uh, but what you can notice is uh, uh, you can be asleep. So. Uh, we try to use everything on the retreat to wake up. Uh, meditation, breathing, sounds, walking, food, digestion. I, I, just, I took a year off from eating grains. Whole year. And then uh, a few weeks ago I was teaching uh, a, a one day retreat uh, I was asked to go to a city in the prairies in Canada. Uh, the city called Regina, Saskatchewan. And they said, will you come teach a retreat here, uh, uh, like for the city? And I said, oh, that's a great idea. Like sponsored by the city. So, um, I, I taught a walking meditation from 8 in the morning until 5.30 p.m. without stopping. We just really slow walking and different organizations gave us food. And we just did slow walking through the city. It was really cold. And then on the retreat I just had this feeling like I should just eat whatever I'm given. So ever since then my diet's fallen apart. And then I came here. So today I really have a stomachache. So I'm going I'm I'm to go back. <laughs> um, but we use that also to wake up everything our relationships with each other Um, when you uh, uh, set up on the yoga mat uh, you'll notice there's some places in the body where there's too much prana we have to settle and then there's some places where there's just no intelligence no vocabulary and uh, so we have to wake that up too That's why our practice has to keep evolving. Because as it evolves, we see, oh, there's a whole new area. I always say to people with their asana practice, if you've been practicing ten years, have you been practicing one practice over and over again, times ten years? Or is the practice actually evolving over time? So we keep waking up. So um, um, that's all you do. You just keep giving yourself to the practice. I hope you're feeling that. And if you give yourself uh, to the practice, then the practice will give you to yourself. And that's that's the path we're on. So, um, your digestion too, hey? <laughs> Peter. So uh, I'm hoping that also you're exploring what it's like to sit in this room and after a while just let go of the technique. Just feeling your breathing and then if there's calmness, just let it go and just sit here. Uh, in the Zen tradition, that's called Shikantaza, which actually just means just sitting. It doesn't mean just sitting, it means just sitting. So you should have the feeling like... The way teachers usually teach it is like this. That's how you should feel. (laughs) Totally here. Nothing extra. In the mornings, uh, we chant at the end of uh, sitting. Uh, Two different chants. Uh, The first chant uh, is the Heart Sutra. Uh, Many of you have uh, studied it with me. The second chant are the Bodhisattva vows. Um, in the Heart Sutra, uh, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva—that's how it starts. Uh, Avalokiteshvara means uh, one who hears the cries of the world. And in India, Avalokiteshvara was a male, and somehow, somehow most of the deities when they hit China go female. It's kind of interesting. Um, maybe as they come to the West now, they'll just like be beyond gender. Hmm. We're not into that anymore, I guess. And, um, Avalokiteshvara is doing deep prajnaparamita, so deep wisdom beyond wisdom, which begins from doing our practice, which is just listening, listening, listening. And um, when we listen, we hear uh, our place in the world and we hear our relationships with each other more clearly. It's taken me a long time to appreciate this. You know, When I was younger, I really just felt my practice was for me. I, I didn't feel much uh, when I started practicing that um, this really had to do with anybody else. Most of us feel this way, right? When you first come to practice, it's for me, you, you know, we're suffering. Um, But it's interesting that the whole of Zen literature and almost all of the polycanon, the interesting parts of the polycanon, which means not lists, um, are all dialogues. (coughs) They're all stories of how people practice together. And when you become intimate with your breathing and your body um, and the natural world, uh, you'll start to feel that you're all alone. No, you won't. See, I wanted to see if anyone nodded. You'll start to feel that you're not alone. That was good. And when you feel the actual feeling of being alive, uh, you start to feel this deep, deep connection with others. Uh, Like when we walk. Um, When you walk, you feel the one body walking. Walking not just about you. And when you chant, you should be aware of how all our voices are together. Do you notice that when you chant, how sometimes you chant and you're just really aware of you chanting? But sometimes when you're chanting, you can actually just feel the whole group chanting. And then we can uh, see more clearly. That's the point of this practice. There's an art critic uh, formalist art critic, uh, Viktor Shlovsky, Russian art critic, and uh, he was famous for saying that um, the reason why there is art is to make a stone stony. Mm -hmm. I love that sentence. To make a stone stony. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the purpose of art is it takes something that's familiar and it makes it unfamiliar. So that we see a little uh, closer. All artists know this. You take something that's everyday and you look at it in a, in a deeper way. And meditators know this too. You hear a koan about bamboo and I, I've seen so many of you going in like
0: <laughs> hearing
1: what that sound is. <laughs> you go listen to the water coming over the weir and you see it in a new way. So, uh, we start to see over time in these stages of practice we've been exploring that, that uh, more and more this is about uh, uh, having a practice that's uh, artful, that's creative, in other words uh, doing something with the material uh, of our lives. to see how everything that arises arises in causes and conditions and we have to work with them somehow and it takes the personal out of it does anybody feel that a little bit like the first day in interviews when people come there's lots of like problems everyone brings to the retreat you know and it's interesting as the time goes on people come for interviewing it's not so personal just exploring causes and conditions And how everything comes from causes and conditions. It doesn't all come from me. Or the person I hate. And you see space. And you appreciate uh, the space that all of this comes from. Sacred. It's like if you took the space in this room and you divided it. And then you divided that. And then you divided that and then you divided it ten times, and then you divided that again, that's your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Every particle is giving birth to us and our experience in every moment. What a shame to miss it because you're in the story of me. One one of the people that I study with is a wonderful guy named Peter Levitt, and um, uh, he has like one instructions, one instruction that he uses like over and over and over again. He always says, uh, "Do things all the way. Go all the way." And I always feel like that's the spirit we're learning here. How many times in the day have you thought, oh God, I'm never gonna make it to the end of the day. And then just a couple minutes later, it's a completely different experience. And that's the spirit that we want to whisper in our ear when we leave here. It's like, keep staying with it and go all the way. However you feel, go all the way. Your practice just can't be based on what you feel. Your practice is based on what you feel. When you feel good, you'll practice, and when you don't feel good, you'll tan. (laughs) And after all, you know your your personality is like really not that interesting. It's not as interesting as life. And so most of our problems that we uh, encounter, and we see this in our practice is just from not being able to go all the way. From not being able to meet the conditions that are arising. So here we are now, stage number nine. Is it flying by?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You don't have to answer that. Um, Having returned to the source, effort is over. The intimate self sees nothing outside, hears nothing outside and still the endless river flows tranquilly on. The flowers are red. The intimate self sees nothing outside, hears nothing outside, and still. River's still going. So maybe one way of understanding this is this is the end of Pratyahara. This is the end of, uh, it's coming out of, it's leaving that experience of being so still that there's just no inside, no outside. You know that experience? We get in that zone and there's just no inside, no outside. But still, um, there's warplanes. And still people are hungry. And our parents are getting old. We have to look after them. And our kids need us. And animals need us. So uh, there comes a point where we have to start using our insight. And so this stage is about uh, seeing really clearly in each moment and also responding really clearly in each moment. So we leave formal practice uh, to respond to the world. But it never really leaves us. Um, first of all, we're able to look at our minds more clearly. And in early Buddhism, they, they, call, they, they talk about looking at the mind and seeing the wholesome and the unwholesome. Wholesome, I love this, I used to hate these words, wholesome and unwholesome. They sounded like so pure Victorian kind of. Um so for a while, I just imagined wholesome as like seeing the whole of a situation or not seeing the whole, uh, but technically, what they mean is wholesome means mental states without clinging, and wholesome means seeing what's happening uh, unwholesome means seeing what's happening uh with clinging so that's the first stage of responding is checking like. Is this this moment fused, infused with craving and reactivity and having a practice that's right there so you can step back? You're going to need this. And also, uh, when you start to see this, your activity becomes more spontaneous, like Mahakasyapa in the flower. Um, Most commentaries say, you know, now you've reached the source and it makes it sound like the source is like this thing, and now you've reached it, and now your training's done. Uh, But I don't see things that way. The source that you see is the source just in this moment. Not just the source of what's arising, but also the source of your triggers. To see that the source of your trigger is just memory, and biology. And now what happens is instead of wanting to be a good person and do good in the world, uh, compassion just starts bubbling up. It's in the background, it's in our breathing. And just compassion becomes your eyelashes. Everything you see just passes through this gate of compassion. You can forgive other people. You can forgive yourself. Wouldn't that be nice, eh? Hey? Just to forgive people? <sighs> Still, the endless river flows on. The flowers are red. I'm gonna miss these birds. Mm -hmm. So what we're learning is, you know, not to make the birds other, not to make the river other. When I've done practices walking in the streets, One of the things I learned a few years ago, that I found really helpful is uh, people who are homeless, they're so used to uh, people either uh, completely ignoring them, so they don't really have dignity, they don't feel dignity, because uh, just people don't mirror them at all. Or people really confronting them head on. You want something, you know, or can I give you something? So one of the things I learned from someone who, who's done a lot of work with the homeless is uh, when, when you're going to relate to somebody who, who's having a rough time, who you see maybe um, doesn't have the same privilege you do, uh, you don't walk up to them head-on, you walk beside them. So they're walking along and you just walk beside them. And then you start talking to them. And I thought this is a good metaphor for everything, all the places in us too that haven't found a home yet. Trauma is like this, isn't it? Trauma is like when something happens to us but it hasn't hasn't landed yet. An event has happened to the body but it actually hasn't been experienced yet. So it's like looking for a home still. So the only thing you can do is you just walk beside it, so it can find a shelter. So maybe one way of walking beside uh, afflictive emotions is um, just breathing next to them. Has anybody been irritated yet on the retreat? No. Just the staff. No one nodded except the staff. (laughs) That was great. (laughs) So anyways, in the morning, um, we chant the vows, uh, the bodhisattva vows. There were uh, some versions that have 37 vows, some versions have 18 vows, some have 10. This one has four. Easy to remember. I hope hope you've memorized it. And uh, this vow that we chant, um, let me just read it to you, just in case you haven't memorized it. Uh, Beings are numberless. I vow to serve them. Uh, Usually it's sentient beings, but I changed it. Uh, Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Usually it's I vow to put an end to them. I changed it. Ah. <laughs> I changed every sentence here actually. <laughs> what happened is my my teacher, who I really learned this from, Enkyo Roshi, I really hated their translation. So one day I said to her, Roshi, let's sit down and retranslate this. She said, That's a great idea. So I said, could you give me the, the Chinese characters or the Japanese characters and we we'll, we'll retranslate it. She said that's a great idea. So uh, then an email came in had you know like many different versions, many translations, all the characters, like everything you could ever want to translate it. So I said, okay, let's let's do it. Let's re- redo it. And she, and I and I said the first word I want to start with is save because it says let's save them. And I said it should say "serve." She said, "Oh, that's interesting." She said, "Okay, so we'll translate it, but here, first I want you to chant it for a decade. First, chant it for ten years, and then we'll, then we'll fix it." (laughs) The third line is, uh, "Reality is boundless. I vow to perceive it," and the last line is, uh, "The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it." Usually it says, the Buddha way is something rather, I vow to attain it. And I just say embody it instead. So um, this, this vow is the bodhisattva vow, which is a gesture uh, to serve all beings. So what happens is, is you're, you're looking at the door of enlightenment, you're walking, to, or the ox, or whatever, You're walking towards the door and then you have a realization just as you're about to open the door. There's all these other people. There's all these other beings. I need to get to know all these other beings. Um, If we're all interconnected, I can't go through the door, it's impossible. There's a guy named Bernie Glassman and he has a great translation. He says, uh, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to count them. (laughs) Hmm. Or maybe we realize that the door that we're walking to uh, was just a construct. Was just another story we're telling. So, this strange thing happens when you practice, at some point you start to realize that uh, you're not just this bag of skin. So we have to start helping others and help other people find their way. Or find a way. I never know when I work with people like what their way is supposed to be. When I meet with students, you know, and you can imagine this retreat, like. I do this all the time. So I meet a lot of people. and I never feel when I work with anybody that like I know what they should do. Ever. I never have that feeling. But I can really feel when I'm with somebody what they shouldn't do. And the thing is, as we start to be aware of who we are, this compassion starts bubbling up. Um, This feeling of wanting to help others uh, starts bubbling up. Um, But a neurosis creeps in also. And the neurosis is forgetting that we are part of the fabric also. We're also part of the whole net. We have needs, sleep, joy, freedom, affection, celebration, refreshment. And if we don't take care of those needs, we can lose our vision and our enthusiasm for serving. And then our serving becomes unskillful. We get discouraged. But when it's working well, we never say to ourselves, I'm helping other people. Could you imagine me? I'm helping people. <laughs> some people say, like, I can't help people. I have no time. Or some people say, I can't give any money. I have so little money. My expenses are so high. Or I can't give food. I'm not sure if it really helps. Um, stop that. Instead, we should focus on what we do have. And what we do have is this resource of attention. And the most generous thing you can ever give somebody is your attention. Try it sometime. Just give somebody your attention. And not like you're on retreat, like... People talk a lot about duality and non-duality. My understanding of duality is not like subject-object. It's just when your mind is going that's good, that's bad. That's right, that's wrong. That's beautiful, that's ugly. So the transcendence of duality is not non-duality. The transcendence of duality is just not knowing. It's making a stone stony. It's getting more interested in what's happening. And not knowing only makes sense if you can actually enact it. And so what happens in this stage, in stage nine, is we don't have intentions anymore. Earlier we needed intention, like banks on the river. We have this prana, we have this energy, and we need intention to keep the energy flowing in a direction, keep it moving forward. But when your practice becomes more embodied, you don't use intention anymore. You're just there. We're just there without an intention. It's not knowing, there's no intention. And we're impacted by the situation. We're one with the situation. And thoughts come and thoughts go, and some we meet and some we don't. And you'll notice when you open up, like I was suggesting, letting go of technique, your thoughts don't stop. They're still there, kind of moving around, but you just don't give them any attention. Have you been able to to see this a little bit? And then sometimes they stop, and then they start again. Stephen Batchelor has a wonderful saying. He says, um, The mind produces thoughts like the liver produces bile. Isn't that nice? My take on it is I I would say it differently. I would say, um, Thoughts are basically your brain farting.
0: (laughs) Isn't that nice?
1: Oh, the person next to me is really quiet. <laughs> this line that says, uh, <clears throat> um, "Reality is boundless." I vow to perceive it. The the word for uh, perceiving is uh, gaku, which usually gets translated as "I vow to master it." Um, the word Gaku means um, uh, to study. So reality is boundless and uh, my practice of non-duality is the practice of not knowing which is the practice of studying experience more closely going all the way. And you don't have to look very far. You don't need this privileged space. So right there in your family, family's boundless. And the ox, it turns out, is not a thing. You can't attain it, but you can be it. Your original self is not a thing. You can't attain it, but you can be it. You can enact it, like peace. It's not a thing, Uh, you can't attain it, but you can be it. You can be peace. So, all the retreat, Kuan Yin, who is Avalokiteshvara, has been here looking after us, listening to all of our cries. She's laughed every time you've banged your head into the glass. <laughs> I feel like we should have a little Donna envelope to pay for the glass that we've smashed. Um And uh, she's listening to the cries of the Sangha, cries of the world, and she can uh, hold it. Every uh, different deity of compassion in the Buddhist tradition uh, has some kind of tool. And uh, one of the tools this one has is um, she's not standing straight. She's almost straight. Can you see that? She's like just getting her balance. And um, she's on a lotus, which is in the water. and um, So she's surfing actually, she's surfing. She was the original female surfer. And uh, uh, every deity has a different uh, tool. Uh, Some of them have thousands. Uh, there is a wooden one in Kyoto that I saw, a wooden Avalokiteshvara with a thousand and one arms. You've seen some images, sometimes in their hand is an eye, which is the ability to like really see you. And it's interesting because when the hand is up, it usually, uh, this mudra means a uh, no fear. It's the same thing as when someone when you're, when you're having a hard time and someone doesn't know what to say but they just put their hand on your back? Do you know that feeling? Or mo- maybe you have to do this for yourself sometimes. Or, they, or you put your hand here. Yeah. And you really, you see them when you do this. Uh, but anyways, this one in Kyoto has like a thousand and one different tools. Can you imagine this? A sword a plow. And there's a a woman in uh, New York City who's a sculptor and she takes uh, um, military weapons, guns, machine guns, uh, bullets, and she melts them down and she makes Buddhas out of them. Mm -hmm. Deities of compassion. And there's another a sculptor um, who uh, makes rubber deities. And in, and in hers, they're very postmodern. So they'll have like a hundred arms and one will have like a cell phone. <laughs> and they'll have like all modern objects, you know, a computer, <laughs> so on. Uh, in the Blue Cliff Record, uh, there's the most famous story uh, in Mahayana Buddhism of uh, compassion. It goes like this. Uh, Yunyan asked Dawu, How does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes? Isn't that a great story? Great question. How? How? Imagine you had a thousand and one arms, all with these different tools. In this example, it's hands and eyes. How do you use it? And dao says... Uh, it's just like a person, in the middle of the night, reaching back to move their pillow. <laughs> in the night when you wake up, you don't think about it. Remember I was saying about no intention? You don't think about it. So then, Yunyan says, I understand. And you think the story would end here, right? No way, this is a Zen story. Like, if you ever say, in a Zen environment, that you understand, (laughs) you're gonna get hit or something, (laughs) you'll be the first person to walk across the bridge. (laughs) So let's go through the story again. So, okay, so this is not a teacher-student story. These are like two peers. Okay? So one says, How does the bodhisattva this is Yunyan asked Dawu? So Yunyan says, How does the bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes? And Dawu has this amazing answer and says, It's just like a person in the middle of the night reaching back to shift their pillow. Don't think about it. Yunyan then says, I understand. So Dawu says, How do you understand? Mm-hmm. And then Yunyan says, all over her body are hands and eyes. In other words, whatever you do with your body, that's using compassion. And Dao then says, what you said's pretty good.
0: <laughs>
1: but it's only 80% of it. And Yunyan says, okay, how do you understand it? I've always wanted to say this to a teacher. When they, when they ask you a question, you're well, how do you understand this? <laughs> and Dawu said, um, all throughout the body are hands and eyes. Do you hear the subtle shift? First answer was all over the body are hands and eyes. And he says, that's pretty good, but it's just 80%. The other 20 is all through the body are hands and eyes. Your breathing, sometimes, is compassion. I think I said this the other day, but I always tell kids this when I work with little kids. I always say, your your breathing is medicine. No matter how freaked out you are, your breath's right there. It's always right there all the time. And that moment is Avalokiteshvara." I worked with a young kid who was schizophrenic and uh, he, uh, he would go home from school and sometimes when he was on the bus, he would start reading the ads and then it would just start to really overwhelm him. The colors would be, get really, really strong. He would start to think that like the ads were saying important things about his life and then uh, sometimes he would just have to get off the bus and then he didn't come home. And then they would have to like figure out the route he took, where he went, and so uh, when I was younger, I, uh, when I was training as a psychotherapist, I thought that that's what I would end up doing, is working with people who were schizophrenic.
0: Um,
1: I was really interested in, in that, and anyways, I, I didn't end up doing that, but I worked with this young kid, and uh, so um, he kept, so, so I wrote down meditation instructions, and he kept them on cue cards and he kept them in his pocket. And we trained so that whenever he's on the bus and that starts happening, because it didn't happen all the time, he, he knew to pull out the cue card and start the meditation instruction. This was before apps. That moment that he remembers, oh. That moment that he remembers, oh God, I can, I can find my breathing. I can find something other than that voice. That's Avalokiteshvara. That's the compassion. And what saved him was that one day, one day he realized that what he was hearing was his mind. In the same way that all of us here realize. (coughs) whoa, that's actually not true. (laughs) There's a commentary on this um, koan. And there's one line in the commentary I wanted to read you. It says, um, great compassion has this many hands and eyes. Do you? <coughs> Great compassion. All these deities of compassion, they have so many hands and eyes. Do you? The point of all these arms is that to enact compassion, so compassion's a good idea, but we all think it's a good idea. But the point of all these hands and arms is that you need a lot of tools you need tools to be compassionate. We need tools. And I think that the tools that we're learning on this retreat, um, which are the tools that most of us don't really learn in the education system, you know. I mean, let's face it, our education systems are not producing more compassionate people. But these tools we're learning, um, They're real. To to embody in society non-reactivity. To embody spontaneity. To know how to use your attention. These are real tools. And you don't actually have to teach them to other people. You just have to model them. We all want to be part of some big revolution. The whole society is going to shift. But um, sometimes uh, it's just how we move when we're on a train. Sometimes it's just how you look at somebody. Or how you uh, soothe yourself in the middle of frustration. Sometimes that's it. Everything can turn on that. So this uh, stage nine is all about um, starting to see how uh, as you get deeper in practice, when it's continuous, when it's seamless, it's just there all the time. It's just there all the time. I assume most of you have some kind of daily practice. And when you skip a day or miss a couple days, you can feel it. It's just not there. It's just not close. So, awakening without um, responsiveness is just apathy. It's not useful. So, I wanted to read you um, a passage from an American poet named Gary Snyder. It's called Atomic Dawn. Uh, when Gary was younger, um, he uh, he climbed uh, the mountains of the Pacific Northwest of the United States uh, all the time. I think many uh, people know by now that Gary Snyder is the, the person who uh, Jack Kerouac used as the main character of his mm-hmm. books.
0: Um, um,
1: a lot of people, a lot of artists were really inspired by Gary Snyder because uh, out of the beat poetry generation, everybody was really interested in Buddhism and Zen and uh, minimalism. Uh, but Gary was the only one who actually practiced.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and then eventually, he convinced Allen Ginsberg to start practicing too. And, uh, and um, when I when I uh, was in Japan some years ago, uh, I went and practiced at that temple where he practiced. Felt it like it was a little pilgrimage to him. And. Uh, Anyways, so this is uh, him walking um, through the mountains, um, right after Hiroshima. So he's, he's in the United States walking in the Pacific Northwest, right after Hiroshima happens. The day I climbed Mount St. Helens was August 13th, 1945. Spirit Lake was far from the cities of the valley and news came slow. Though the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, August 6th, and the second dropped on Nagasaki, August 9th, photographs didn't appear in the Portland Oregonian until August 12th. Those papers must have been driven into Spirit Lake on the 13th. Early the morning of the 14th, I walked over to the lodge to check the bulletin board. There were whole pages of the paper pinned up, photos of a blasted city from the air, the estimate of hundred and fifty thousand dead in Hiroshima alone. The American scientist quoted as saying, nothing will grow there again for seventy years. The morning sun on my shoulders, the fir forest smell and the big tree shadows, my feet in thin moccasins feeling the ground, and my heart, still one with the snow peak mountain at my back. Horrified, blaming scientists and politicians and governments of the world, I made a vow to myself, something like, by the purity and beauty and permanence of Mount St. Helens, I will fight against this cruel, destructive power and those who would seek it for the rest of my life. So this is the bodhisattva vow. And it's uh, personal for all of us. Some people the vow might be... um, um, I am not doing what I love. I'm gonna do what I love. For some people that might be the vow. I mean, imagine if more people did what they loved. The uh, American composer John Cage says, imagine if unemployment rates rose so high that people would actually have to start doing what they should do. (laughs) (laughs) So to sum up this stage, it's basically saying, You practice letting go, you practice the hard work of coming back, and then you become more willing to give your life more fully. But not in one way. It's not like, you know, oh now I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to fight companies that cause deforestation. Well maybe, and maybe you'll do that for ten years and then maybe you'll do something else. But the point is to feel how good it is to give, like the donable. How much money do you put in the donable? Well, part of that depends on your context like um, I always say to people, "Give so that you don't have any regrets." So you leave here and think, "God, I had like that one that half a euro that was ripped, you know or you think... A million might have been a little too much. <laughs> um, the most important thing, though, is just to have the feeling of giving. To feel what it's it, it like to give. Even if you just write a note and you put it in there. Just the feeling of giving is so Good. And there's nothing in our economic model that ever supports that, you know. We've learned to distrust that so much. When you bow, you give. That's a Bodhisattva vow. It's a Bodhisattva vow. Kwan Yin's giving. So just to be right here, to not hold on, and then to respond, to give. And how satisfied we can be with so much less, you know, when we feel this feeling of generosity. People always say to me, oh, you know, when I, when I, when I, moved, I moved, I left Toronto and I moved to this beautiful island. Then when I go somewhere, like I come to France and people say, Oh, it must be so nice to live where you live now. And I always say, so nice to be here in France. Mm -hmm. So sometimes our practice is about being very, very careful with our intentions, with how we speak. And sometimes we have to kill mosquitoes and rats. Or we have to yell. There's a time for yelling, you know. A couple weeks ago, I stayed at somebody's house and they had one of those walk in freezers, fridges, you know, like they have in restaurants, because they entertain a lot. So they had a cupboard and it had a walk in fridge. And I just had this feeling like I wanted to go in and yell. (laughs) (laughs) And the woman whose house it was has a a young daughter who's, I don't know how old she's, I think she's like 21 or 22. So at the table I said, you know, when I went into your walk-in fridge, my first reaction was, people must go in here and yell. And and the mother said, I've never thought of that. And the daughter was like... (laughs) So that's returning to the source, stage nine, tomorrow, stage ten, which is entering the marketplace. Thank you.